Again, glad to have you here this morning. Thanks for being here. We, this year, have been in a series in the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. And as we've mentioned before, this has always been a go-to book to really get at what Jesus says and does and what, he, what He's about. So uh, we are almost at the end of it, John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 10. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the order of worship there. John chapter 20, verse 10. When I was in college, I used to love... Well, let me back up. I was a night owl when I was in college. I've lost all of it, the ability to do that. But I I could hang with the best of them in college. And um, because of that, one thing I used to love to do on Fridays was get through the Friday classes, assuming... I had attended those, and uh, then lunch, and then maybe see a few people after lunch. No one did anything even close to resembling homework, you know, on Friday afternoon, so just take that off the radar completely. And uh, after seeing some people is then take a nap. Oh, man, the Friday afternoon nap was awesome. Okay, well, I remember one day, uh, late Friday afternoon, I, I was just ensconced in my nap. <clears throat> and the phone rang. Now, you know, there, there are these... I, I, I wish I knew more about sleep, and I wish I could sleep this deeply now, but <clears throat> I was in such deep sleep in this nap that it was that feeling when you wake up and you don't know what day it is. You almost don't know where you are. Like, I, I could have a test in five minutes. I have no idea what time it is. I, I don't know where I am. The phone rang. I woke up. I was just completely disoriented, and I got over to the phone, and it was my friend Philip. And Philip said, hey, what's going on? Hey, tell me, how do you get to such and such restaurant? Now, when he said that, I looked out the window, and it, it was dusk. And, but it looked like dawn. And then I looked at the clock, and it said 5.50. Okay, so I look out, and it looks like dawn. And the clock says 5.50, and my friend is calling me to ask me directions to a restaurant. And so I said, why are you doing this? Because I thought, he's calling me at 5.50 a.m. on Saturday to ask how to get... Who does... This is cruel and unusual punishment. And so he could tell that I was scattered, and I finally understood, oh, wait, it's, it's dusk, and it's 5.50 p.m., and my sanity was restored. Um... If, now, if you, if you were watching that, knowing that story, like you had just heard the story, now let's say you were watching video of that happening, you could watch me and see that the way I'm responding is demonstrating that I, I, I'm not getting it. Like there, in other words, you know things that should keep me from responding the way I am. Now think about this. In John chapter 20, at the end of the chapter that we're about to draw from, The Apostle John says this, you know, Jesus did all these other signs, all these other miracles. Wouldn't it be cool to know just a couple of those? Because John was with him all the time. He was an eyewitness. He said, oh man, he did all these other miracles. But I recorded these in this book, and he calls calls his book a book. I put these in my book so that you'll believe that He's the Son of God, and that by believing, you'll have life in His name. 
So yeah, I've got this agenda, and I'm telling you my agenda. I want you to believe. But I was very careful about what I included. And then he says at the very end of, of his book, he said, if, if you wrote down everything Jesus did, the world couldn't hold the books. You wouldn't have room for them. So in other words, I have selected very carefully. Now here's what that means. When you and I are reading this book of John, John is letting us do something. He is letting us know things and see things that the people who are responding at the moment to something don't know. He, he's, he's letting us hear things early on that are showing us why someone's response is inappropriate or ill-timed or that somebody makes an assertion and they said way more than they knew they said. What I want you to see in this passage is that the participants who are in the middle of a day like they've never been in before, that they are responding to what they see. And what John is letting us see is, all right, if this is how you respond strictly by what you see, this is what you'll get. But you, the reader, know more than that. Because you, the reader, don't just know what they're seeing. You know what Jesus has already said. That that interprets everything that's happening here is everything that Jesus has said. Look with me. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 10. The context is that this is what we call Easter morning. It's early Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene and some other women have run to the tomb of Jesus found it empty, Mary Magdalene has scurried back to find the apostles, other disciples, to tell them that the tomb is empty. They've run with her back to the tomb and have seen that it's empty. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary, Mary Magdalene, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Let's pray together.
Father, we sit here as people who almost exclusively understand life in terms of what we see. And what we pray for now is that you would use your word and work in our hearts and make us to be people who understand life in terms of what you have said. And you will have to do this. Give us ears, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of you had a great post on Facebook this week. Um, If you're on Facebook, just know that I electronically monitor you. All the time. I'm always there. But I'm not going to say who, but I told this person I was going to to quote him. But but, uh, one of our church members... His Facebook post a few days ago was, When I look at my children and how they ignore the consequences of their actions, I think to myself, how can they not see that this is always the bad consequence of this action? And then, or one day they're going to see that this is the consequence of their action. And then I look at my own life and I think, um, maybe not. Now, I thought that was great because we we all should be able to identify with that. Uh, Especially watching children, you think, this happens every time you do that. You do that when you know not to do that, and then this consequence happens, and there's crying, and there's weeping, and there's gnashing of teeth. Learn from the weeping and the gnashing. Don't do that anymore, and we won't have the weeping and the gnashing. And then you think about your own life. Now, if I were to ask you, what's really a dark reality about your heart? What's a really sinister thing about you? I mean, we might feel like, I don't think I'm sinister. I make mistakes, but I don't know that I'm dark. But do you know what in Scripture is a dark, sinister thing to do? It's to know that God has spoken truly about your life. But because what you're seeing seems so much more vivid, that even though we may not say it out loud, what really is in our heart is, yeah, I know God said that, but... Yeah, I know God said that, but I have got a mortgage. Uh, I know God said that, but what good is that if you don't have a spouse? I know God said that, but I'm sad. So there. But that that really is a dark thing about us. And that is all of us. That is all of us. And really what that is, is saying, what I see is truer than anything He has said. You know, yeah, I do believe what he said. I'm I'm not joining Atheist Society of America or whatever. Yeah, I do believe what he said, but it's true in a different way than these bills or this loneliness or this sadness is true. In this passage, you've got participants in something that's really happening on Easter Sunday. And they are doing what all of us do. They are responding according to what they see. 
And what they're showing, what John is letting us see is things you've already heard Jesus say have not become real to them. They're reacting by what they see. And I want to look at that in a couple of ways, especially with Mary Magdalene. First off, looking at what is she seeing? First off, insensitivity. And the second thing is absence. Okay, first off, insensitivity. Second, absence. Who is Mary Magdalene? There are a ton of Marys in in the Gospels. Uh, There's the famous one, the mother of Jesus. There's a mother of two of the disciples, James and John. Uh, There are other Marys, but this is Mary Magdalene. Now, who is she? First off, and I'm not, this is really not the main point of the sermon, but I have to mention this. She is this wonderful demonstration that the gospel writers give of a validation of the importance of women in the kingdom of God. The first witness to the resurrection was Mary Magdalene. And the gospel writers go out of their way to let you know that. And the amazing thing is, a woman's testimony in a first century court was inadmissible. And so if you're writing a book and you're wanting everyone in the world to believe this good news, it doesn't serve your cause to have a woman find the empty tomb and tell everybody unless that's what actually happened. And the other amazing thing is this. When, when Mary Magdalene recognized Jesus, what did she say? Rabboni. My rabbi. Rabbis did not have women pupils. Rabbis did not have women students. But she regarded Jesus as her teacher, her rabbi, and she was regarded as his disciple. That's not revolutionary to us. That was utterly revolutionary in the first century. Huge validation of women in the kingdom of God. Now, what else do we know about her? She probably had means. It says in Luke chapter 8, there was a group of women that helped financially support Jesus, who had no house, who had no regular income. And Mary Magdalene was one of those. When she thought Jesus was the gardener, what did she say? Just just tell me where the body is and I'll take it away. And that seems to suggest I can pay for him to be put somewhere else. So apparently she's she's got means. What else do we know about her? She's a disciple. She's heard Jesus' teaching. But the main thing I want to say is this. She loved Jesus. She just loved Him. Now, before you read any weird Da Vinci Code mojo into that statement, what do we mean by that? Jesus said this in another gospel. He who has been forgiven much loves much. You know, if you find yourself saying, man, I really need to love Jesus more, what we're probably showing about ourselves is that we think we're good people. If you think you're good, there's not a really felt sense that, man, He had to give me a lot of mercy. And man, He sure did, causing love to flow. Well, Mary Magdalene did not struggle with that. And the reason was, it also says in Luke 8... And this is weird. Mary Magdalene had been possessed by seven demons. It would be horrific to be possessed by one. But her body at one point had been like a playground 
of the, of the demonic. And there was nothing she could do for herself. And Jesus came into her life and drove them out and gave her new life. And she loved Him from that moment on. Now, one way you see that in this text that's really dramatic, again, this validation of women, is that she goes and gets the disciples, runs them back to the tomb, they look in, the tomb is empty, and then what happens? This is very important. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And we're not completely sure what's going through their minds. I mean, we learn later in the chapter that some of them just go back to work, go back to fishing. But she cannot leave. She cannot leave. And we don't want to read something in that's not there, but, but it's basically as if this is the only place where I found life. The, the jewel that I've been looking for my whole life, He gave it to me, and this is the last place I saw Him, and so she won't leave. Uh, who knows how long she would have stayed. Now, there she is, weeping. And you know the difference between crying and weeping. When you cry, you can just kind of leak. When you weep, your eyes puff up. You know, your nose runs. You're a mess. She is weeping at the tomb. And she looks back in the tomb, and there are two angels sitting where Jesus' body had been. And of all the questions to ask a weeping woman at a tomb, what did they ask her? Why are you weeping? And then two verses later, when she sees Jesus before she knows it's Jesus, what question does He ask a weeping woman at a tomb? Why are you weeping? Now, we just buried my last grandparent a few weeks ago. So, funeral homes are fresh on my mind. The question you would not ask someone under those circumstances is, what are you crying for? You act like you're sad or something. She's at a tomb. And death was a lot more in your face back then. It wasn't closed casket. And here's the thing. The only thing that would explain that question, because as far as we know, angels are not insensitive. They're very powerful. But apparently they're not insensitive. And we know Jesus is not. The most loving man who ever lived. The only thing that makes that question make sense is this, is if they know that something has happened that undid what she's weeping about. Let me say that again. The only thing that makes that question that's asked by the angels and Jesus make sense is if they know that something has happened that undid the source of her weeping. Now, what does that mean? We don't know what all angels know and don't know. There's, a, there's this mysterious verse in Hebrews that said, when you're, when you're talking about the gospel, that angels long to look into these things. It's almost as if there's certain points theologically that they still don't get about how all this happened. But what do they know? What do we know they know? That the second person of the Trinity, whom they have watched in heaven, 
since they were made and have watched Him become a man and have known that He is coming to do something that is going to revolutionize reality. And He did it. And a woman looks into the tomb where He isn't anymore. It seemed natural for them to say, you wonder if they kind of looked at each other. Why are you crying? You are standing in the most happy piece of real estate in the world. What do we know Jesus said that Mary Magdalene may never have known, may never have heard? We've already heard Him say things like this. I'm going to limit myself just to John. John 11. When Lazarus died and Jesus shows up, what question does He ask? What does He say? What do you think is going to happen to your brother, Martha? What's going to happen to your dead brother? Well, I know that he'll rise on the last day. And what did Jesus say? Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And when he says that, what is he claiming? He is saying, not just that I have the supernatural power to raise a dead person to life, He's saying, I in myself am the resurrection. Who I am and what I'm going to accomplish is going to undo all the death, all the evil, all the effects of the fall. I am the resurrection and the life. The only way it would be loving and compassionate for Jesus to look at a weeping, grieving woman and say, why are you weeping, would be if He knew something that we've already learned in John, that He has unleashed joy. No matter, Mary, no matter how painful what you're looking at is, because all she knows is the man I love most in this world, again, no weirdness, but the man I love most in this world who told me the truth is gone. And sometimes when you think Jesus is gone, He is standing in front of you. Saying, why are you weeping? Alright, insensitivity. The other one is absence. The disciples, it says a few verses before our passage, they still did not get it. This whole thing about rising from the dead. And if you had never read the Gospels, if you had never been to an Easter service if you had spent three years with a man who knew how to use a metaphor or two and he kept using this phrase about, I'm going to rise from the dead, you might think, ah, it's one of his teaching deals that, I don't know, he'll explain it to us later. And then he dies. Then he dies. You are not expecting for him to burst out of a tomb after he's killed. So it says, even after all the times they heard that's what he would do, they look in the tomb, he's not in there. And they go home. And Mary can't bring herself to leave, but she's there weeping. She, she has no idea what's happening. And then she looks up and there's a man. She thinks it's the gardener. And just, I throw this in for no extra charge. I just think it's fascinating. Jesus is called in Scripture the last Adam. He did what Adam didn't do. He fixed what Adam ruined. And guess what Adam did for a living? He was a gardener. And she looks up and there's a man. And she thinks, 
That man's a gardener for, for no extra charge. Just think about that. Here's the gardener. Sir, just tell me where he is. And what does she mean? Tell me where the corpse is. Just tell me where the body is. And I'll move him just so we'll know where he is. And then he says this. This is so good. Mary. Now, what have, as readers, what have we already heard in John chapter 10? I'm the shepherd, and I have my sheep, and they recognize my voice, and I know them by name. We heard that just a few chapters ago. And here is this rattled, weak sheep. And when the shepherd speaks to her by name, Mary... Her eyes open and she yells out, Teacher! She has never been to an Easter service. He was flogged and crucified and he is standing there very alive. Now it doesn't say what she did, but you can tell from Jesus' response that she must have just clung to him. We don't know if it was a frontal hug or fall at his feet and just not let go. Our natural response would be that Jesus should say, I know, it's awesome. (laughs) And what he says is, because all she wanted was him. And this is like the bad dream just coming untrue, like you woke up from the terrible nightmare and it's not real, not real. He's there, clings to him and he says, don't cling to me. Why would he say that? It is as if Jesus is saying, you are clinging to me right now like you're never going to let me go. Because you think that if you let me go, you'll lose what you found in me. If you don't let go of me, you won't have as much of me. If you'll let go of me, You'll have more. And think about this. Now, she doesn't know this, but we as the readers have heard in John 16, Jesus said this, It is to your advantage that I go away. And if He was your life, your structure, literally your Savior, you go, it wouldn't, there's no way it can be better for you to go. And Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away. Then he gives a message to the disciples through Mary Magdalene. What what did he say to tell them? Second part of verse 17. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Think about this. The disciples saw the empty tomb, don't know what to do, go home. Some of them go back to work, back to fishing. As the readers, another thing that we've heard Jesus say is this. This is John 14, 18. Guys, this is the night before the crucifixion. Guys, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. And think about this. When he says, Mary, Go tell my brothers, my brothers, not my traitors, my brothers. 
Go tell my brothers that I am ascending to the Father, to my Father and your Father. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. Hey, Peter, you know how that time you said, we believe that you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. Even though you betrayed me, denied me, I want you to know something. I want you to know that I am the Son of God. And I want you to know that you are God's Son too. Hey, John. Hey, James. Hey, the guys that we never talk about. You know, Bartholomew. Thaddeus. You're God's sons. I'm going to my Father and your Father. Because He's our Father and we're brothers. And then even more glorious things are going to happen shortly. Now, what are are we supposed to do with all that? Um... Because it's easy to look at the disciples, how slow they were to get things, and to kind of think, you guys, you know, come here, Thaddeus, you, you know, just... You know, why, why can't they be quick like, like me? Stop and think about our lives. What are you looking at? And when I ask that question, I don't, I don't mean that so much in a pop culture way, what TV, what movies, what... But I mean, as, as we are living our lives, what is real to us? Because here's the thing. These guys went into what we call Good Friday completely believing that whatever Jesus said is true. And by Sunday, they're living as if, I don't know what to make of all that. Yeah, I believe everything Jesus said. But I'm going back to my boat. My boat is real. Fish and water and oars and nets are real. That's what I'm going with. I think maybe in the end, Jesus works all this out. But I'm going with that. And I I think it is accurate to say that in this room, there are quite a few people who would say, yes, I do believe what Jesus says. I believe that whatever He says is authoritative. But here's how we actually live. Here's when Jesus was. Here's a timeline. And then here's my life right now. And then here's when I die. And I really do believe that when I die, all this stuff about Him being the Son of God, the resurrection, man, that's all going to have tons of meaning right now, right then. But I live now in this point, this little window right here. And this right here is bills. Uh, It's bills and marriage problems. It's loneliness. It is addictions that I'd rather not talk about right now. Yes, I believe he died and he rose from the dead and it's going to be awesome at the end, but I live here. And do you understand what we are doing? We are doing exactly what the disciples did. That here are the words of Jesus and here is the mortgage. This is great, but that is real. Here are the words of Jesus. And here are all my disappointments in life that are right in my face every day. Yeah, the Bible's true, but this is real. We are the people that need to interpret life through what we have already heard. 
through what we have already heard. What what is going on in our hearts when we look at our disappointments in life and think, if such and such hadn't happened, I could live the life I was supposed to. What we are saying is, I was deprived of life. I was deprived of the life I should have. And I don't mean this in a corny way, but it is as if Jesus is standing in front of us at that moment. Because really what we're asking is, where is Jesus in all this? It is as if He is standing in front of us saying, you know, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. If you get everything you want, you will not have an abundant life. It may be through the pain of loneliness or loss or failure or sickness that you are actually going to eat my flesh and drink my blood and have real life. That you will not just be a churchian, but you will be my disciple and your dreams will come true. We need His words. He says in John, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you want, and it will be given to you. And when, we, Especially if you're from a church background. When you hear that, you think, Oh, crud, now he's pressing for more Scripture memory. I never do that. Ugh. Yeah, Jesus says, Abide in my words, and then what does he say? Abide in my love. Abide in my love. love my love is not data. My love is a place to live. And I want to end by saying this. Think about the movie, The Princess Bride. I have really gotten away from 80s illustrations, and I want to apologize to you for that. And I'm repenting and coming back to 80s illustrations. We'll have some Duran Duran quotes next week and ramp it up. Okay. Princess Bride. It's funny that that movie has... It's not like an expensive movie. It sort of has ended up being like a modern fairy tale classic, even with horrible special effects, bad 80s synthesizer music. It's It's a medieval movie with synthesizer music. That doesn't fit at all. But we love that movie. And I would say to you, there are theological reasons why we love that movie. What is the underlying theme of that movie? Now, you may think this is corny. But I'm telling you, you can choose whether what we see is more real or what he says is more real. The theme of that movie is even death cannot end true love. If it's true love, even death can't end it. The reason that we need Jesus' words is not so you can know more Scripture and answer more fill-in-the-blank Bible tests. The reason we need Jesus' words is because that is where you find His love. He won't love you more if you memorize more Scripture. And the way to remember that, that that's how He loves, is by memorizing Scripture. He 
loves us, He always tells us the truth. When He says, you're going to have tribulation in this world, but take heart. I've overcome the world. He knows that you need that when you have marriage strife. He knows that you need that when you lose your employment. He knows that. But He says it to us because He loves us to say, I know what you see looks like I'm not here and I'm uninvolved and I'm off at a distance and I don't care about you. And I'm telling you, I am involved. I'm standing in front of you and I've overcome the world. Friends, we need His words if we're going to understand what we're seeing around us. What we're seeing around us is true. But what He says is how we understand what we're seeing. He loves us. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we are not naturally ones that... We're not naturally ones who would go to a sentence from 2,000 years ago the law and the prophets from 3,000 years ago and use that as our glasses to see life. We use our intuition. We use our mind power, our willpower. We use the opinions of others. But your words are not our glasses. Oh, Lord Jesus, you have overcome sin and death. You are the resurrection and the life. We pray that you would make of us men and women who abide in your love and abide in your words and then see life around us in that way. We ask this in your name. Amen.